sweet land of liberty, our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinach. Welcome back to Freedom's Ring, my friends. You know, in this age of COVID and COVID mandates, there's an awful lot of people objecting to the vaccine, and some of whom have religious reasons, many of whom don't, but are availing themselves of religious objections. But long before this vaccine, our guest today did some research about the various state laws and and vaccine obligations, especially for school children, and how it is that people seem to take secular objections and somehow pigeonhole them into religious objection. Our guest today, happy to welcome to Freedom's Ring, Professor Dorit Rice, a law professor from University of California Hastings School of Law, and you will detect an Israeli accent, which I find delightful, but hopefully you can follow it just fine. Professor Rice, thank you so much for being with us on Freedom's Ring today. Thanks for having me. I'll try to speak slowly. (laughs) No problem. That's very difficult if I might stereotype Israelis. But anyway, so, I mean, states have vaccine mandates for school children long before COVID. What was it that your research found about folks objecting to the vaccines? From what I've seen, most people who use religious exemption are actually refusing vaccines for reasons that are not religion, religious and are using the religious exemption as cover. There are, of course, exceptions. There are people who have sincere religious objection, but that's not the majority. So what's the implication of that in terms of how we process as a society, how employers process objections, how hospitals especially process objections? You know, what are the implications of that as we try to balance, you know, the needs of public health and respect for religious liberty? So there's basically three potential routes we can go here. The first route is non-medical exemptions as a whole. That certainly has a drawback, which is it puts people with sincere religious objection in a very difficult position. But on the other hand, it reduces their urge to lie. The second option is to give religious exemption and police them. The problem is that our law makes it very hard to police them because the focus of our legal study, and I think rightly, is on the sincere personal belief of the believer rather than enforcing an institutionalized religion. And that means that whoever is policing this has to look at people's, at people's sincerity. And minus there is that it can reward the sophisticated liar over the sincere but less glib or less resourced person. And the third is to offer an, an exemption that's not based on religion, take away a needs to put it in religious term and make it hard to get. If we want to protect religious freedom, we either need to allow the states or the employers to police people's uh, claims better. And I think that's somewhat of what we're seeing right now, but that really comes with some risk because uh, it's really hard for whoever is assessing the belief not to fall into, do I think it's rational? Do I think it makes sense? And that's judging people's conscience, and that's a problem. So we need to either allow people more, more leeway to police them with the risk of that, or find a way to do this that doesn't require people to say religion. 
Well, very interesting. You know, as we were discussing before, my law practice, we focus on protecting employees in particular who have religious accommodation requests. And generally, we don't get a lot of scrutiny on sincerity of belief. We did have a Sabbath discrimination case recently where a federal court was asked to reject the sincerity of the Sabbath belief because the individual had on occasion previously worked on Sabbath. And the judge found that, you know, it was either because they were required to or financial hardship, but the fact that they were very consistent in insisting on it with this employer and lost their job over it, you know, found that uh, there was no issue about their sincerity of belief. Uh, with the vaccine problem, you know, employers are starting to use a number of ways of testing sincerity, especially with the COVID. Are you familiar with some of the, what's being done now to test sincerity of belief? I am. And I want to mention that one of the things you're highlighting for us is that in many contexts, there isn't as big a problem because there isn't as strong an impetus for widespread abuse. And as you're saying, situations that look like they raise a sincerity problem usually have another explanation. This context is unusual because there is a strong impetus for people to uh, basically lie about. What I've seen is, so some employers ask specific questions to try and gauge the person's uh, sincerity. I will say that the anti-vaccine people that are guiding people through this are telling them, you don't have to answer all the questions. Don't answer the ones you're uncomfortable with and see what the employer does. But <laughs> people, employers are asking detailed questions. Some employers are requiring, for example, if one of the claims against the vaccine is the connection to cell lines, which is closer for J&J, &J, more remote for mRNA vaccine, but does exist. And some employers are asking, are you using these other products connected to cell lines? Which is probably weaker looking backwards because someone can say, I didn't know there was a link to cell lines. But might be a way to say, if going forward, if this is your claim and if you mean it, you need to forgo this and this, Tylenol and all this long list of other things. Right. And we're seeing that now. I'm, I'm having clients, you know, we're screening a ton of these cases. People are calling us for help who have vaccine objections. And some employers are saying, well, if, if your objection is based on the connection to fetal tissue, which generation ago came from an aborted fetus, then there's all these other products that were tested with the same cell line. So are you going to agree that you won't use Motrin or Tylenol or aspirin or Pepto-Bismol or any of these products in the future? And if not, then, you know, what's your problem with this one? I'm curious, what's your impression of that kind of approach? I know what I think, but what do you think about it? Well, I think it's certainly a clever way for the employer to try to assess um, you know, whether somebody is really sincere or whether this is some, you know, an excuse that they were given by a lawyer or they discovered it on the Internet. You know, and, and frankly, you know, if you're going to raise a religious objection, you need to be prepared that somebody's going to come at you and question you as to how you learned about the connection to, say, the fetal tissue, you know, fetal cell line. And if you tell them, well, I learned about it on the internet or I learned about it from my lawyer, well, you know, there's questions about the sincerity of your belief, isn't there? Yes, there is. Uh, some employers seem to have gone the other route and say, we, we just won't give religious exemptions. That seems to be what United Airlines has done. 
when it puts people with religious exemption and medical exemption on unpaid leave, which of course raises its own issues. And it also seems that some employers are simply accepting all claims and leaving it at that, basically turning the exemption into a check-the-box exemption. Well, and, and I have to say, you know, if you're an employer, the blanket rejection of accommodations puts you at great risk because it strikes me that the, you know, kind of the, the mainstream approach is you either comply with the vaccine mandate or you get tested regularly and you wear PPE, et cetera. And so if you're an employer, you're going to have to justify why is your employment setting requiring something beyond regular testing and PPE for those who may have objections. Uh, so if you can't really prove that the objection is invalid, is secular and not religious, then you really could have problems. You know, it's a subject that I think is fraught with difficulty all the way around. But let's talk, you know, we don't have a lot of time. What about the broader public health dimensions of having a lot of people seeking exemptions and not having a really valid basis for it? More broadly, so the risk, of course, is if a lot of people are using a religious exemption, whether or not they have a basis for it, by the way, the cost is that you don't have a high level of vaccine. And the cost is going to come in more cases and more death and more harm. The vaccines are certainly imperfect, but they reduce transmission. They reduce, certainly reduce death and hospitalization. And the cost here is going to be directly in death and harm, which is, by the way, one reason that uh, some states and states, not employers, are not offering a religious exemption. Whether that's justified or not remains to be tested in court. But that's one way out to say the price in uh, death is, is too high. Again, that has its own issue. But uh, at the end of the day... Well, I was going to say, you know, when it comes to school vaccinations, as California eliminated its um, conscience and religious objection several years ago, uh, there is no balancing test. There's no protection for having a right to object. With employment, you have a general uh, protection for religious belief that has to be accommodated you know, in an employment setting, you don't have that when it comes to school attendance. I think there's at least two parts to this. When you're talking about K-12, there's another dimension here, which is we're not just talking about religious freedom, we're talking about children. The children aren't making their own religious decision here. Uh, we're talking about parental freedom to make decisions that may put the child and their classmates at risk. And the courts are a lot less sympathetic to that than an adult employee who says, this is my personal belief. And that's a qualitatively different situation. But the interesting thing is that we don't have the same protection of religious freedom as the education context in many states. For example, for university students in states that don't have an independent religious exemption to university students, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that protects employees doesn't protect religious freedom in education. That's almost certainly true. I, I have looked into that pretty carefully. You know, the accommodation provision is specific to employment, you know, and I have some ideas about how to challenge that we can talk about offline. But you're right. You know, when it comes to children, there's a line of Jehovah Witness cases, mostly, you know, at the trial court level, I think the courts will generally permit adults to make their own decision to refuse a blood transfusion, even if it's life-threatening. But they won't permit an adult to decline a blood transfusion for children. 
you know, based on Jehovah Witness belief about not having blood transfusions. So there is a, a pretty clear line that the courts have worked out there to protect children. So that's one difference. The other difference is, so assuming we're allowing a system of public education, there's laws that require that the children be centered. So it's a shared environment in a very real sense. Um, allowing a parent to bring a risk into something that other parents may have no choice but to, to send the children to is, again, it's a different situation than an employment. Employment, I'm not going to overstate it. There's limited choice for people when it comes to employment, so there are real financial consequences for losing your job. But there's no law that you have to go to work or you may face file jail. There are such laws for education. Well, and even in employment, one of the issues I hadn't been giving too much thought to was raised by a colleague of mine. What about the employer's interest in protecting the health of the co-workers who may have some kind of unstated health risk? You know, employees don't have to tell their employer their entire health history. And, uh, you know, if you're not vaccinated, you may pose a greater risk of harm to co-workers. That's going to be a very interesting area to see what happens in the courts with that, don't you think? I agree, it is. And it's one of the things that's going to come up, for example, under the American Disabilities Act, where some people are going to argue for um, not having to give accommodation because the employees are direct threat. In the religious area, it might be one of the justifications for, uh, going back to your earlier point, for not giving accommodation. You rightly point out that when most employers offer testing as an alternative, it's hard to justify, but some employment places are a much higher risk than others. Sure. So healthcare is going to be particularly interesting. Our guest today has been Professor Dorit Reese. We're talking about some of the issues around non-religious objections to the vaccines. Thank you so much for being with us on Freedom's Ring today. Thank you very much for having me. And as we close, this has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Reinach. Until next week, let freedom ring. <laughs>